Welcome to episode 234 of the Energy Talks podcast. I'm energy and climate journalist Markham Hislop. Stephen Leahy is a Canadian award-winning environmental journalist, author, and writer of the Need to Know by Stephen Leahy substack. His most recent post, and by recent I mean yesterday, was No Stopping the Clean Energy Transition. Please do me a favor and check it out. Welcome to Energy Talks, Stephen. Happy to be here. We are going to talk about COP28. We're going to talk about the energy transition. And you followed COP28 closely. I'm curious what you think about the final quote-unquote compromise by the OPEC nations uh, primarily uh, that brought about the the final agreement. Uh, how much of a I, – I personally, I, I – a little bit skeptical that they gave much ground or that they gave any ground that they, you know, really intend to permanently cede. I think this is more of a tactical move, but I'm, I'm curious what your take is. Well, certainly going into the COP, uh, OPEC and the Saudis in particular had a very strong, there's no way we're going to back off uh, continuing on our production or, and increasing our production levels. Um now, the uh, COP president, uh, who's the head of the UAE uh, National Oil Company, uh, had made some strong commitments at the beginning of the COP that, no, no, we are going to get to a uh, recognition that fossil fuels, uh, that era has to end. So there was quite a uh, uh, you know gulf between the two views, even though they're in the same OPEC uh, group. So the compromise was this sort of... Uh, slightly vague wording about transitioning away from fossil fuel energy. Now, that is, of course, subject to interpretation. Uh, many folks say, okay, that means we are definitely getting off fossil fuels. The era is ending. But it's certainly possible that the Saudis and others say, well, okay, sure. So we're going to move away slowly, gradually, maybe. So yeah. it's still up there. Uh, my my view on this is informed by the three days I spent at the World Petroleum Congress in Calgary in September, and mm -hmm. I come back to this all the time because the it was very clearly a choreographed uh, launch of their new narrative, and right. their new narrative is is uh, was then backed up by OPEC's uh, World Oil Report 20, 2045. It got launched uh, a couple of weeks afterwards. It's all part of a package. And what struck me, I said in the plenary session where the uh, Saudi Aramco CEO and Darren Wood, the ExxonMobil CEO, uh, really, but, the, 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 but Amir Nassan in particular, really hammered the IEA and the whole mm -hmm. fast transition argument. And, and then throughout the three days, it was nothing but everybody from top to bottom was, was parroting this slow uh, transition narrative, and the the OPEC uh, analysis, in my view, uh, has a couple of fundamental flaws in the assumption. We'll talk about that maybe later, but the global South is becomes the key. They very clearly are saying, okay, the OECD nations, the global North, uh, we expect them uh, that you know they're going to adopt clean energy technology faster. Uh, their fossil fuel consumption, particularly you know oil and gas, is going to decline, but it will be more than made up for in the global south. 
And that's where I think the battle lines are being drawn. And did you get any sense of that, uh, you know, during, you know, your take on your, you know, when you were watching the Globe, uh, sorry, the COP28 negotiations and discussions? Yeah, I mean, the, the uh, a, large, a lot of these uh, OPEC nations have been uh, very friendly with uh, uh, countries in the global south. They have a lot of relationships with them. They've, uh, they don't have the colonial history, largely. Um, so there's not that baggage. Um, and they can present themselves as folks who are willing to help because they have the money to help. Um, however, at the same time, um, they could help the global south leapfrog the fossil uh, energy uh, paradigm that the rest of us have used uh, to jump right to clean energy, but they have not been putting any money into any of these funds that are supposed to help uh, poor countries uh, leapfrog. So yeah, that's definitely, it's like the tobacco industry strategy when they got kicked out of North America and Europe, they quickly moved to the global south. Yeah, I, 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 you can see that happening, and and I think the um, the wild card here is China. Uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative, which has poured hundreds of billions of dollars, um, more than a trillion, if I remember correctly, into yeah. emerging economies, but really did favor coal up until about two, three years ago. Yeah. And uh, uh, listeners who are interested, uh, I did a an interview a couple of three weeks ago with uh, Herbert Crowther of uh, uh, Eurasia Group. And and he talked about the Shuangtang uh, policy that China adopted in 2020, the two carbons policy, and how that was a, a pivotal moment for the way that Chinese think about, about the power sector and about coal. And, they're, and so now they're, coal is being increasingly looked at as a backup to renewables and, and uh, clean power like hydro and nuclear and and renewables. And, and they're changing their view of the Belt and Road Initiative. Now they're 70% mm -hmm. of it is now uh, investing in renewables. And yeah. then you see the, the US, Biden has let, I forget the name of the organization, but it's kind of sort of like a Belt and Road Initiative for the for the for the West, and, and Biden is leading it. And I can't help but think that both China, because it's going to have so much surplus capacity in its manufacturing of things like solar panels and, and wind turbines, the solar particularly, and the U.S. are going to target the global south. And they're going to want those markets for their own uh, clean energy manufacturers. And at the end of the day, the emphasis on, the emphasis on, on securing markets uh, in in the emerging economies will play a key role in how fast this, the transition goes. Your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a, uh, uh, I mean, this has been China's plan from the very beginning, even 20 years ago. They were uh, the first, I think, to really recognize the power of the clean energy transition, while at the same time, as you mentioned, the two carbon approach of uh, building up their own uh, fossil fuel using sector. Um, so, the, and that's, of course, it's all come to pass. It's been highly successful. They're the biggest manufacturer of solar panels or a major uh, manufacturer of wind turbines, selling it to uh, everybody else in the world. And they're gonna continue that um, as long as the global South has the money to do it. But there's other ways that the Chinese have adopted to uh, help countries that haven't got the cash 
they'll take uh, you know uh, access to resources instead of the uh, getting payment that way. So that there's a big competition, and certainly the U.S. is way late into the game. I don't know if they can catch up. Yeah. I, I was reading a an IEA report um, uh, on the weekend uh, that was talking about the where we're going to be in ten years in terms of clean energy tech industry, and China right now dominates with about eighty percent, which is like a stranglehold. Uh, but the Americans and the Europeans have have figured out they're late to the game, but they've figured out, and Americans in particular have a very a uh, clear view of what the problem is and where they're going and they're putting their checkbook where their mouth is. But the IEA thinks that as even if the US and Europe spend 1.4 trillion dollars which is kind of my back of the napkin calculation for what they've committed, even if they spend that much money in 10 years they will have not gained anything on China. China will, it plans to spend that or more and will retain the same 80% of that manufacturing capacity as they have today. That's extraordinary. And I can't help but think that it has that that kind of invest capital investment in manufacturing capacity is going to have a spillover effect into those emerging economies as the cost of solar and EVs and heat pumps and so on uh, continues to decline as everything gets scaled up. Absolutely, uh, it's uh, the first mover advantage, and it's and it's not just that they were like a year or two ahead of everybody; they're like a decade or two ahead of everyone. And uh, at that kind of gap, I don't think it'd be made up. Um, the other thing is the political dimension of uh, of of dem democracies. There's the one step forward, two steps back. I mean, that could easily happen in the U.S. Uh, China, it's full steam ahead. We've got these long-term goals. We're putting in all the pieces to make it happen, and they make it happen. Yeah, the Americans are very clear that they understand. Uh, they understand the uh, connection between uh, economic power, manufacturing prowess, and geopolitical power, and that's the thing that comes out in the the writings of you know, people like Secretary of Commerce. Gina Raimondo and 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 Biden's economic advisors is the Americans have got caught with their pants down. I mean, basically they they made some assumptions about about where China was going and and they got blown out of the water when the pandemic came along and they realized how how vulnerable they were to China's supply chains. Uh, and and now they want to reverse that and reshore manufacturing and build up America's industrial might again that's a big task that's a you know i i applaud them and, and it's going to benefit canada for sure because we'll be a favored nation we'll we'll have access to uh some of that investment and we'll have markets for critical minerals and so on uh, but catching china is going to be a, a real challenge so where do you think we're going to do you think that the cop 28 was a strategic victory for for the for climate activists for those concerned about climate change and for the energy transition um or is it kind of window dressing that's it's a difficult uh, call in some ways for some people it, it may have been a wake-up call uh that uh, the uh, fossil fuel producing countries 
are agreeing that there's a end game coming. On the other hand, from uh, the climate activist point of view, it's extremely disappointing because first of all, it didn't say phase out and that there's the commitment to accelerating this transition to fossil fuel free energy is, you know, in another vague statement of without any timelines, without any deadlines, without any penalties, without any uh, stick to force folks to make this happen. Um, so from that point of view, um, it's not a great victory. And secondly, the funding to help um, developing nations, you know, leapfrog again to clean energy, nothing happened there either. So this has been a longstanding problem, it goes way back to 2009 in the Copenhagen Agreement. One of the points that you made in your uh, Substack that caught my attention was the social norm transition mm. that you talk about. And I find that interesting because while we focus on the energy transition, there are other transitions going on. And I've written extensively about the materials transition mm. uh, that uh, Alberta, should it ever wake up to it, uh, will be trying to take advantage of. Um, tell us about social norm transition. What does that, what does that mean for you? The idea, I mean, <clears throat> the notion that certain things, certain behaviors, certain things that a country or a nation are doing uh, or individuals are doing uh, becomes less acceptable. Uh, so, for instance, slavery is a good example. That was once sort of considered not much of a big deal for the folks who were the slavers. Um, it wasn't considered particularly bad or immoral. Um, that's a social norm that uh, changed over a period of time. So those kinds of social norms are what sort of underpin what we think is right or moral. So this is something that uh, I think is starting to happen with fossil fuels, particularly amongst younger folks. They don't want to work in the industry because they see it as a dirty industry. They see it as uh, uh, not something they want to be associated with. And I think you may have found that yourself uh, in uh, talking to folks in the sector, that there's a, they wish they're, uh, even if there's already working there, they wish it would be doing more. And they're kind of hopeful as all that advertising saying about how clean uh, uh, they intend to be and how they're going to reach net zero is going to actually happen. But on the ground, it doesn't look like it at this point. So so that's one of those things that can really shift things. Uh, they're gradual. You don't really notice it at the time. But um, I think that's something that, yeah, we all need to explore. I know social scientists are really keen on studying this particular topic as well. I, I can I can see that norm uh, changing. Um, I don't have many twenty uh, somethings on my podcast, and uh, just realized that actually this tends to be uh, guys, uh, you know, like you and I, who are a, a little a little a little grayer up top. Uh, but the the reason for that is is you know our focus here on on experts. We place a high value on expertise, and that's ten, tends to be who. And so experts tend to be a little, a little, a little older, but the I find myself changing uh, in this way. And you know, for instance, we've always had two cars, mainly because I I tend to drive around a lot uh, for my work. And you know, now we're we've got two e-bikes, and so we're thinking about ways that we can uh, substitute e-bike uh, kilometers for car kilometers. And it's not as easy as you think, uh, given the way we live in Parksville, BC. And while there are plenty of trails here, the the uh, streets are not laid out in a way, and there are not enough uh, bike lanes yet to make it 
to facilitate doing that. So we've had to be, you know, maybe not, we're not writing as much as we should. And uh, so we'll see how, how that all plays out. But I think that's just one way that people's values are changing. Can you give us a couple of examples of what you have in mind? Well, the whole idea of e-bikes and two and three wheel electric vehicles, they are, you know, skyrocketing in sales uh, far, far, you know, 10 times faster than electric vehicles, uh, particularly in countries where winter isn't as big a, an issue. Um, so that's, you know, that that kind of shift is happening. I think the the idea that people are, um, younger people in particular, have filed a bunch of lawsuits, you know, suing countries and uh, uh, getting them to do more. So th that's those kind of folks have a strong commitment to uh, uh, shifting uh, the narrative to a clean energy future because they're, they're looking that far down the pipe. At the same time, there's a lot of... Um, um, angst about the future amongst younger generations, um, rightly so. Um, some ways that uh, angst hasn't been fully harnessed yet uh, in terms of uh, protests or taking actions to, um, say, shift the way in which people are behaving. Um, I think the manifestation of these change in social norms is still coming. Um, I've, I've been speaking to a few social scientists who say it's a difficult area to study, um, difficult area to quantify, and from a journalist point of view, it's difficult to write about uh, because they don't have any hard numbers and there are um, so many qualifiers in all of their work uh, that it really makes it difficult to report on. So, But it's something I'm definitely going to be following in 2024. Well, let's wrap up our conversation with a, conver a point that you make in your Substack. Uh, which is the is that the um, you know the energy trans transition can't be stopped, and this is no longer cyclical change. This is structural change in markets in demand for for fossil fuels, and I'm curious about what you think uh, the view of that is in Canada, uh, because I think we've been late to the game. I think that we see it primarily through the climate lens. And I I worry that we're far too complacent and we're going to be lapped by more agile and hungry countries like Indonesia and Malaysia and Vietnam and, and Korea and, and others. So just your take on it. Well, generally, Canada is a, a nation of... Uh, uh... Complacent, I guess uh, it's difficult to get Canadians to um, to change um, because we're already comfortable. Uh, things are okay. So when you don't have that motivation for change, the real strong motivation for change, it's more difficult. So uh, yeah, Canada is still be, is behind and it's going to be behind for a while. Um, it may not bite us in the butt. Uh, it's hard to tell at this point, but... Uh, I'd like to think of Canada as a leader, and once upon a time, 30, 40 years ago, Canada was a major environmental leader uh, on the world stage. Uh, it's been difficult to reclaim that position, and I'm not sure we're going to. Um, well, I, I, actually, I, if you don't mind me jumping in here, uh, you live in Ottawa, and mm -hmm. so you're, uh, you know, the the nation's capital, and and uh, what's the sense of the, you know, the political dynamics in Ottawa? What does Ottawa think about the energy transition and where we need to go? Is there any urgency that you you can pick up? 
Certainly not in the city of Ottawa. I mean, there's there are bike lanes and they're continually fighting for more bike lanes and there's continued uh, uh, battles over the cost of transit. Uh, there's a new LRT system, which keeps breaking down. Um, there's a proposal to increase the rates again on the uh, for transit passes. Uh, which of course is contrary to what the uh, you know, ridership uh, problems, which have been declining since COVID. Uh, so, as a, as a nation, as a national capital, yeah, not leading. Uh, I'm afraid, um, not in certainly the way it should be, nor nor compared to other cities uh, such as Vancouver uh, or many other, even in the U.S., like New York City. Oh dear, I, my you. Know. I often say that this podcast, we try to split the the interviews between international guests and Canadian guests. And what becomes really abundantly clear to me talking to the international guests is how rapidly things are changing globally. The sense of urgency to get in while the, the getting is good, you know, mm -hmm. to take advantage of opportunities while the you know, the window of, of opportunity is open uh, because it, it will close over time. So I'm I'm a little uh, a little disheartened by by your comments, but it is what it is, and we have we have to address it at some point. Well, Stephen, thank you very much for this. I really appreciate it. Great, good to be here.